Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and this is the 20th Century Movie Club, Volume 25. And I am joined, as always, by my regular co-host for this series, Michael Scott. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, sir. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing well, as always. And we have another special guest. So if you would please uh, take a moment and introduce yourself. Sure, Dana. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. My name's Colin Woodward. I'm a historian and an archivist. I live in Richmond, Virginia. And in addition to being a movie buff, I have my own podcast called the American Rambler Podcast. You can get that on Spotify and Libsyn and other places. And I'm working on a book on Johnny Cash right now, and hopefully that's going to be at the publisher soon. So staying busy, listening to music, watching movies, and also a big fan of your show, Dana. I appreciate you saying that, Colin. And, and for listeners out there, I was a guest on Colin's podcast recently, and there will be a link to his podcast in this episode show notes. So I invite everyone to check it out. It's a, it's a fascinating show and uh, just really happy you were able to join us. So you know the rules of the game. On the 20th Century Movie Club, we only recommend movies that were released before the year 2000 and whenever we have a special guest on we always ask them to come up with a particular theme so would you tell the listeners what theme you came up with and uh, maybe the the reasoning behind it sure well today we're going to be talking about war movies and the reason why I chose that is I am a historian and I've studied military history quite a bit uh, my specialty is in the Civil War but I have a big interest in World War One, World War Two, and I've seen a lot of more. I've seen a lot of war movies over the years, and the reason why I wanted to pick war movies is because, well, first of all, some of the best movies of all time have been war movies, but also I think war movies serve as a good kind of. Uh, benchmark for the history of Hollywood. If you look back and you look at certain movies, some of them were very pathbreaking, and I'm sure we're going to talk about some of them. But I think war movies have been around pretty much as long as, as movies have been around. And if you look at some of the more significant movies that have been made, they a lot of them have been war movies. And as a historian, I've I've used war movies myself in the classroom a bit to kind of talk about you know, what is this movie doing? How historically accurate it is? And I don't want to get hung up necessarily on how historically accurate these movies are. Uh, they are, after all, movies and they're trying to tell a dramatic story. And a lot of times they take a lot of license uh, with with the facts. Um, but like I said, uh, you know, some of my favorite movies have been war movies. And I'm sure it's the same uh, for you, Dan, and, and, and same for you, Mike, that, uh, you know, if you create a list of your best movies, I'm sure at least a couple of them uh, will have been war movies. Sometimes they're they're pretty accurate. Other times they're just they're just straight made up. Uh, but I think they're, you know, among some of the most dramatic and emotional movies that have ever been made. No, very well said. And I'll, I'll say that and I won't name the movie in particular because I have a better than average chance of saying that it's going to be one of the ones that's selected today. But, you know, there was a particular film 22, 23 years ago that finally made me understand for the very first time the horrors of, of war and combat, because there were so many movies that sensationalize violence and exploitative violence. And when you see it presented in its most realistic and raw and gritty form, you begin to truly understand just how horrific war can be. So I just think it's a, a dynamic topic that you came up with. What about you, Mike? Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I agree completely, Colin, that, you know, war movies are kind of uh, 
as important to cinema as is maybe any kind of genre and, and to a certain extent important to literature i mean most you know kind of a lot of the classic things we consider in literature are essentially about war so it is uh you know to quote chris hedges it's the force that gives us meaning so i think this is a great topic Okay, so Colin, you're the special guest, so we're going to let you go first. What is your first pick for Volume 25 of the 20th Century Movie Club? Okay, well, my first pick is what I think is the best Civil War movie that's ever been made, and that is 1989's Glory. This was a movie directed by Edward Zwick. It has a terrific cast. Probably the most memorable performance is Denzel Washington, who won an Oscar for his supporting role in that. But the movie is full of great performances. And the reason why I wanted to pick this one first is I think if you're interested in the Civil War, it is absolutely a movie you should watch. But I think if you're interested in any war movies or really uh, cinema generally, uh, you should definitely see Glory because it, it came out in a time when the Civil War was gaining a new interest. Uh, there is a, a book written by historian James McPherson called Battle Cry of Freedom that came out a year before, won the Pulitzer Prize. And about a year or so after Glory came out, uh, you got the Ken Burns documentary. So the Civil War was kind of coming back online, people gaining a new interest in it. And I saw this movie on VHS when I didn't get to see it in the theater, which was unfortunate. But I, I think this movie connects at an emotional level in a way other movies do not. Um, it is a war movie, so it's it's kind of tragic on the one hand. Uh, it's very violent at times, but it's also an inspiring story because this is the first movie, the first Hollywood movie anyway, that looked at a African-American regiment during the Civil War. And I think it was a story that a lot of people didn't know very well, uh, if at all. But this was a Massachusetts regiment that uh, fought in the Union Army, uh, fought to free the slaves. And, you know, we can say a lot about later movies like Saving Private Ryan and others that kind of was a game changer in terms of how how war movies were were shot and the technical aspects of it. But Glory is pretty amazing because the opening battle scene is uh, at the Battle of Antietam, which fought in Maryland in 1862. And it's a really horrifying scene. It's not very long by Saving Private Ryan standards, but it does give you a good sense of what Civil War combat was like. And, I mean, you see someone's head get shot off in like the first two minutes of the movie. So it's it's extremely graphic, but it, it really does bring home what it was like to fight in that war. And the ending battle scene when, when the regiment charges the fort in South Carolina is a really terrific scene and very moving scene. And Civil War historians like this movie for a variety of reasons. It is it is pretty accurate in terms of its history, its details, its period details. They did take a lot of liberties uh, with the facts at times. But the guy who wrote the screenplay, I'm not sure of his name, I, d I didn't write it down, but I think he was very deep in the Civil War. He has a cameo in the movie as one of the Union soldiers. So he knew his stuff. He, he did his homework on the history of the regiment and everything. But um, really, in every way, I would I would recommend Glory because of the history, because of the, the performances. The, it's a very well-paced movie, but also just how 
how emotional the movie is. I mean, if this movie doesn't make you cry, I don't know what movie would. Um, so, you know, there's some there's some problems with it. I'm not sure if um, Ferris Bueller was necessarily the best choice to head the regiment, but um, I, I do think that um, Matthew Broderick he does pretty well with that role. And, and so again, to, if I'm going to recommend you watch a war movie tonight that you've never seen, I, I think I would start with glory. I'm going to defend Matthew Broderick a little bit more. Uh, sure. It, immediately when you mentioned glory, I thought about, you know, and put, let's just put, put the fact that Ferris Bueller came out three years prior and he's, you know, very affable and charming in this one, the role of Colonel Robert Goulshaw, I mean, when he took command of this regiment, he was, what, 22, 23 years old, somewhere in that age That's range? Right. So, I thought Matthew Broderick was so perfectly cast because he looked so young and he looked so in over his head with the task that's been given to him. And I think just watching his character develop towards the end and and sort of the the respect that the men ultimately have for him, I just think, I, I think he's perfectly cast in the film. Um, I also like Carrie Elway's in the film as well. And I'll second what you say, Denzel is a, I mean, that, I mean, it's an Academy Award winning, winning performance. He won the Oscar, support Best Supporting Oscar for that role. Uh, Morgan Freeman's in the film. Uh, I think it, I think it's a film that never gets bogged down with pacing issues. I think it moves along at a pretty well, uh, a pretty good clip. Uh, I think that's an excellent recommendation. Mike, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, I mean, I love Glory. Glory's uh, fantastic. It's kind of the movie that, that put Denzel on the map. He'd been in movies before that, but this is the one where, you know, he really became Denzel Washington um, and, and has been that way for 30 years now. I, I love this movie. Uh, Colin, the screenwriter is Kevin Jari, who's also uh, well-liked amongst the 20th Century Movie Club parts because he wrote Tombstone. Oh, um, right, right. So, uh, yeah, so he, uh, and he was, he was definitely deeply fascinated with this. You can tell there's there's definitely some narrative decisions that have to be made um, without getting into spoilers. You know, I think there's a, there's a particular discussion with the flag that comes back later that that is... On one hand, rousing and emotional, but on the other hand, a little sort of emotionally manipulative. But I think overall, it is an absolutely fantastic movie. Uh, Edswick, I think, is a director who gets uh, a little bit underappreciated uh, from his for his technical skill. I, I don't know. I don't think he's ever made a better movie than than Glory, but I think technically he makes some pretty spectacular films and and this is certainly uh i think his best so i think this is a great recommendation yeah and just to add to discussion of the performances i mean i know denzel won the oscar and he absolutely deserved that it's, it's a terrific performance but like like you guys said i mean morgan freeman gives an outstanding performance um and also andre brower who mm. I don't think I knew him for years afterwards. I saw him in Glory. I think he came out on, um, he was on Homicide for a number of years, and now he's on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But he gives a very, a, a very nuanced, um, heartfelt performance in that. And I think, you know, if I was in that regiment, I probably would have been more like the Andre Brower character, who's very well read, but not a real tough guy. And it takes him a while to really get acclimated to the regiment and dealing with Denzel's hostility and everything. But he, you know, he evolves throughout that movie um, as a character. And I don't, yeah, I don't want to be too hard on Matthew Broderick. I think as the movie progresses, he does 
he he settles more into it and at the end the you know the final battle scene is is very rousing and uh just just really kind of you know sucks your heart out I mean it's just such a, a moving scene so you know I yeah I don't I don't want to be too flippant with with Matthew Broderick he's a fine actor uh, but I think initially with his accent kind of floating around sometimes he sounds like he's John F Kennedy other times not hmm. uh it's a little bit more noticeable to me but it certainly does not detract from the movie in any major way. Sure, sure. Uh, one more thing I'd like to say about the film is it's, you know, when the regiment gets formed and they're doing the training and, you know, it's it's interesting because they're having a hard time getting just the basic provisions for for their unit because, because again, it's, it's civil war and it's just, a, it's a terrible time. But they're so eager to fight and you as the audience are really like, wanting them to to finally get a chance to prove what they can do and the first time that they have that i would say sort of limited skirmish with uh with the enemy i thought watching sort of the reality sink in for them like oh yes no 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 we're gonna die if we you know there's a lot of us that are gonna die in this situation you just see the guy sort of just drop like flies and it's just i think it's a really dynamic scene and it's really powerful and it gets me every time the first time they do battle yeah and i remember when i was watching it initially the uh the U54 is about to charge that that fort at the end of the movie and i was watching it and there's that scene where matthew broderick kind of gets off his horse and he gives it a smack and the horse goes running off uh into the the uh the surf by the water and my mom said something like it's not like John Wayne movies, is it? And she was really, <laughs> she was right. I mean, if you watch movies in the 40s and 50s, you know, they had certain limitations, but war is, was so often sanitized in movies. And when you see it played out, like you said, Dana, that skirmish, which in the movie, one of the reporters says, you know, I don't even think we'll make the paper because not enough guys were killed during it. Yeah. Um, to get to the big heavy battle scenes is, is just really uh, a, a wrenching experience and, and really does kind of uh wipe the slate for a lot of war movies leading up to glory all right well mike what do you've got for your first pick of the episode so my first pick is uh a movie that that contains perhaps the coolest performance from one of the coolest actors who's ever lived um and that is steve mcqueen uh who i think by and large is the the measure by which coolness uh, is measured for every every other actor um and i don't think he has ever been cooler than he was in the 1963 John Sturgis film, uh, The Great Escape, which is kind of the opposite of glory in that it's not a realistic war movie. It almost makes war, for lack of a better term, fun, simply because the cast in this movie is so good and so charming and so delightful. Uh, for those who don't know, it's based on a true story. Uh, heavily fictionalized by the time it got to the movie, but based on a, a nonfiction book of the same name about a group of soldiers who stage a very elaborate escape from a German POW camp in World War II. And uh, McQueen was brought in basically to increase the... It was all British soldiers in real life, and it's mostly British soldiers in the movie, but McQueen was brought in basically to increase the, the popularity and the bankability of it. And he brings his A-game in this movie. He is so damn good in this movie. Have either of you guys seen The Great Escape? I'll go first. I, once, 25, 30 years ago, and really, 
I saw it at an age when it had, it didn't impact me the way it needs to. So it's, it's a, it's a fast revisit for me. Uh, obviously I know one of the most iconic scenes in it. I won't spoil it for those who haven't seen it, but I'm very familiar. And that's obviously it was lampooned in top secret as well. Yes. Yes. And, and, and I can say it without spoiling it. It is a, it is a stunt that McQueen does himself. That uh, is, is absolutely fantastic. It's, it's a legendary scene. So uh, Colin, what about you? I'm glad you brought this one up, Mike. Uh, this was, you know, I had a, a, a pretty lengthy list of movies here. I wasn't sure what we were going to talk about, but I had an asterisk next to the great escape because, yeah, this is a very fun movie, one of my favorite World War II movies. And you're right, Mike, that this is probably Steve McQueen's best movie, I would say. It's not a vehicle necessarily for him the way Bullet and other movies would be, uh, but he's terrific in it. It has a huge cast. It is a very long movie, but again, in terms of the pacing, it's just a terrifically paced movie. It had the same director as The Magnificent Seven, which is one of my favorite movies, and it's kind of like The Magnificent Seven in a constant not a concentration camp prisoner of war camp um because he, he reuses some of the actors he reuses mcqueen he reuses james coburn and um charles, charles bronson, bronson. Yep. who's so memorable as the digger and this is a movie i don't know how many times i've seen it it's it's been a while sometimes it'll be on tv and i'll, I'll catch a little bit of it but I, I used to watch it a lot at home around the holidays for some reason. I don't know why this became a holiday movie. Um, maybe because there's a lot of winter scenes in it. But um, no, it, it was a movie that we talked about a lot at home. We would quote the lines, Charles Bronson, you know, needing more wood to uh, shore up the tunnels and everything. So it, it really has every, I mean, there's not a lot of war in this movie because it's set in a prisoner of war camp. But um, it's a very entertaining movie, great cast. Um, James Garner is in it and gives one of his best performances and his friendship with Donald Pleasance. I, I, I just love that. Um, and it's a movie that it was made before things got really graphic in terms of war movies, but I think it does a pretty good job of showing you how risky the escape was and the kind of psychological toll that's that's happening because the guys that have been in prison for a long time, um, one of them, there's a Scottish guy. Uh, he's, he's in the cooler with Steve McQueen a lot and he ends up kind of going crazy. And some of the tunnel workers start going a little crazy too. Charles Bronson does. So even though there's not that graphic violence, there is some violence later when the Germans are rounding them up, but it, it does give you a good sense of the psychological toll and that the risk that these guys were taking by trying to escape. So, so, uh, Mike, I, th I think that's a terrific choice. I'm, I'm glad you you had that on your list as number one. Yeah, this this movie is just it's one of my all time favorite movies. Uh, the other thing that I want to mention is the Elmer Bernstein score, particularly the theme, is an all time hall of fame movie theme i mean it is absolutely a perfect piece of music um that if you dana when you do rewatch the movie i guarantee you will be whistling the theme <laughs> to this movie for days right. afterwards um because it is it is just it is a spectacularly brilliant theme and and uh yeah colin i agree with everything you said you know i i think 
I love McQueen in this movie, but everybody else is fantastic. You know, one of the other actors we didn't mention is John Hammond himself. Richard Attenborough is absolutely fantastic in this. Um, it is a true ensemble movie, and I love that everybody gets their, you know, there's no question that McQueen's the star, but everybody gets their their moment to shine in this movie, which, you know, it, it is admittedly to give folks a heads up. It's almost three hours long. There's a lot of breathing room in the movie. It warrants it. The movie justifies the three hour runtime. And quite frankly, I think it's one of the fastest three hours that, that you'll ever watch. It just goes down. It goes down like a smooth whiskey, man. This movie just <laughs> is, is beautiful. So, awesome. yeah, I love this one. Awesome. Perfect. All right, Colin, what do you have for your second pick of the episode? Okay, well, I'm going to go back to the early 1960s and talk about one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Lawrence of Arabia, a 1962 movie directed by David Lean. I I think it's safe to say his best movie, uh, although if you like Bridge Bridge on the River Kwai, you, you might disagree with that. But this is one of those movies, it's a little tricky because... Some people might not necessarily think of it as a war movie and maybe put in the category of a biopic because it is about uh, T.E. Lawrence. But it is set during World War One, and it's set in a theater that uh, people don't know a lot about, which is the uh, Arabian theater at the time was the Empire of the the ottoman turks so the movie you know it's not taking place in the trenches like in other world war one movies it's about colonel lawrence um trying to unite these arab tribes against the turks and trying to make the turks their common enemy because they're all under this umbrella of the turkish empire but the problem is that there's so much infighting with these tribes uh lawrence's main problem is trying to get them together so they can fight the Turks. And again, this is one of those movies where kind of top to bottom, really everything works for me. I mean, probably what will grab people first is just the scenery of this movie. And it's the kind of movie they don't really make anymore. It's a very epic, sweeping type of film. There's a lot of scenes in the desert. And it's a weird movie because... At the time, I think a lot of people involved with the movie were kind of expecting a disaster um, because it doesn't have a lot of action. There's really no romance in it uh, between a man and a woman, like in a lot of war movies. It's really just about, you know, Colonel Lawrence in in the desert. And Mike, you talked about the music and Great Escape. The, um, Lawrence of Arabia has terrific music um i think the the cast is is great and i think why and it's certainly a war movie in a lot of ways but i think what it does is it kind of shows you the political side of fighting a war because this is about an english officer going into the desert in arabia not knowing how much history there is with these these tribes and these cultures and and how much they hate each other uh honestly and he's trying to figure that out while while trying to also uh you know win battles and like the great escape it's a very long movie and i, I it's not quite as uh I, I don't know it doesn't have quite as much action as certain war movies but i don't find it a boring movie um at all and you know there's there's kind of it's one of those movies where if you could watch it with a group and talk about it, 
that would be kind of the way to see it. But I was lucky enough last summer to finally see this movie on the big screen. I'd, I'd seen it a number of times, but finally being able to see it on widescreen and it just had so much, it had, I mean, it's always had an emotional impact for me, but seeing it on the big screen, it, it, it kind of brought that back to, it was almost like seeing the movie for the, for the first time. So I don't know if this is a movie that people watch as much as they used to, uh, but I did see it when I was, I think I was in junior high, so I was fairly young, but I was able to appreciate the movie for what it was and get sucked into the story. So, uh, again, not really a movie that Hollywood makes much anymore, but I, I just think it's fantastic. Awesome. Mike, what are your thoughts? Fuck, this movie is so good. <laughs> this movie is so good. Like, I I know that the, the youngins and the young listeners, this is a movie that is is going to seem not you know, it's really, really long and it, it's not, you know, it doesn't have a ton of action. Just like Colin said, I first saw this, I was probably 19. I think I was 19 because uh, not that anybody cares about the story, but I didn't get the chicken pox until I was 19. And if you're an adult getting the chicken pox, let me tell you how bad that sucks. I was laid out for almost two weeks. So all I did was watch a bunch of movies and this is one that I had never seen. So I just sat there in a fevered state, basically watching all uh you know four hours of this movie and was absolutely blown away by how amazing this movie is um this is i think david lean's absolute masterpiece i think that it is a fascinating for such an epic movie i think it is it is fascinating as a psychological study of uh this amazing man doing this great thing for all the wrong reasons <laughs> like absolutely just all the wrong reasons um and still managing to you know accomplish some some pretty spectacular things i loved this movie so much i actually immediately after i saw it and got over the chicken pox went and bought the uh, T.E. Lawrence book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and and read the entire book. And let me tell you something. If you think the movie's long, that book is really goddamn <laughs> long. Uh, but, like, that is how much this movie moved me. And, and I haven't watched it for a long time. I'm due for a rewatch. But, my God, this is possibly the best movie we've ever recommended Ooh. on this podcast. This thing is so good. Well... That's interesting because I have yet to see it. <laughs> so <laughs> this might be the one I have to watch tonight. Um, I'm very much familiar with it. Ironically or interestingly, he is a character in the Battlefield 1 video game that came out a couple years ago. You actually play <laughs> yes, you yes. play a few miss missions as him. And uh, that was actually when I was playing the game. I was like, I, you know, I really need to see that movie because this is this is interesting. Just the missions that I'm on. So that one's just shoots to the top of the list. 100%. Yeah, I think this is a movie that could have its own podcast and there's so many great things going on in it uh i think peter o'toole is what really holds this movie together he gives a really intense performance he was a pretty unknown actor and i th i think he was not he was not the first choice but I think he's in pretty much every scene in this movie or close to it. So the movie was really riding on his performance and it is a really intense performance by him. I think he said his acting advice to someone later, he said something like, you should always, uh, 
have a look on your face like you're about to miss the train. That's what he said. <laughs> and I, I, you kind of are seeing uh, Lawrence's character start going crazy by the end of the movie um, because of the war, because of the stress on him, the physical stress, the psychological stress. So it's a really great character study. And, and that's why you might hesitate to to put it in the war film category because it's it, there's not a lot of combat but the combat scenes are are well done and it's it's so sweeping you have guys on horses wielding swords and this is all way before cgi so it's it's all just boots on the ground sweaty guys running around you know doing stuff in the desert and so just at that level it's amazing uh movie to watch but uh, the last thing i'll say about it because I, I could go on and on about this movie but um Mike, that's funny because I got the chicken pox when I was 18, and that, like you said, sucks really bad. I had seen Lawrence before then, but I had seen it on a 13-inch screen. It was a VHS. We had a small television, and even then, it was great. So if you can kind of work your way up to a, a big screen TV, or if you're lucky enough to see it in the theater like I did, they do occasionally re-release this movie maybe every five years or so to hit an anniversary. It, it kind of depends. But if you ever get a chance, Dana, to see it in the big screen, absolutely do it because this movie was made for widescreen, made for big sound and big imagery. And I do not think you'll regret it one bit. All right. Well then I will, uh, Oh, that's a tough call because, uh, maybe I, I don't know. I'm, I'm dying to see the film. I'm probably going to watch it tonight, but I will probably definitely see it in the theater if that option presents itself. So excellent. All right. So yeah. Can I just, yeah, can I please, just add one, one thing really quick too? Because Colin, you mentioned Peter O'Toole and, and one of the things that is indelibly burned in my brain is the way David Lean shoots O'Toole in this movie too. So O'Toole has some of the bluest eyes you will ever see, but not a lot of directors could really take full advantage of it. Lean shoots O'Toole in such a way that his eyes will literally burn themselves into your brain. I, I you know, you, Colin, you said it's an intense performance, and so much of that intensity comes from the eyes in this movie. It really is. If you just even look up some pictures of O'Toole from Lawrence of Arabia, you'll see how how he's shot and the way he is uh, sort of framed. It is it is a singular performance, and it is a director understanding that he's getting a singular performance and knowing how best to take advantage of that it, it really is i i i'm i'm going over the top on it but this thing really is <laughs> just absolutely amazing Excellent. and if i just say one more thing i mean in, in terms of the director's choices and how he shoots certain things again you're just not going to see it today like the, fir the opening the first scene where omar sharif comes into the movie and it's a long shot of the sun on the horizon and you see this character riding on on camel toward the the camera and i don't know how long a shot it is it's at least a minute i'd say and he's, he gradually gets bigger and bigger but it just gives you that sense of the scope of the desert and how hot it is and and the dust and everything so it's it's got so many iconic shots like that and so yeah if, you, if you're if you're serious about you know, directing, um, you should absolutely see this movie. Um, but it really, it is a movie everybody should see. All right, Mike, what do you got next? 
So I think we're going to actually end up having to do a part two if Collins Collins willing to come <laughs> back because I had a hell of a time narrowing down uh, the the movies to recommend. I finally settled on on this one. I was really struggling because I had about five that I wanted to talk about, but uh, I'm going to next recommend and. and we, you mentioned a movie earlier, Dana, uh, that came out a while ago that talked about the horrors of war, and I think we all know probably what one it is. I'm actually going to recommend the other war movie from 1998, oh, uh, okay. because for me, it is actually, I think, the superior war movie from that year. And I am talking about Terrence Malick's uh, The Thin Red Line, uh, which is a movie based on uh, a novel uh, essentially telling the story of the Guadalcanal campaign during World War II. With an all-star, unbelievable cast. If people haven't seen it, you've got Sean Penn and Adrian Brody and Jim Caviezel and George Clooney, John Cuse. I, I, I could go on and on about the, the people that are in this movie. This was sort of Malick's return to film after taking a long, long time off. And it is, I think, his best film it is certainly a uh not a an action-packed movie there is some some very good horrific war scenes in it but it is far more concerned with the philosophical and psychological toll that war takes on the participants and really is a i hate this term as applied to movies but almost like a tone poem uh, as a film it is 170 minutes it is very languidly languidly paced, but it is so beautiful and moving for that 170 minutes that I don't think you will care about the pacing. Um, Have either of you seen this one? I saw it in the theater in 98, and I think, see, back then I would have been 20 years old, and, you know, had coming off, had just come off seeing Saber Prime Ryan. I think I was expecting uh, a little more of what that was. So the first time I saw the film, I won't say I was disappointed. I was just confused. I think I was expecting something completely different. It wasn't until I settled in to watch it a second time that I understood, you know, this is a very different film than Saving Private Ryan. And it is a, uh, it's it's excellent. And I, I'd like to point out if, uh, if you'd like to hear, listeners want to hear a quick little story about Terrence Malick, I invite you to listen to my interview with John Travolta part two. Because John is also in this movie, and he actually has a little story about why Terrence Malick took that 17-year-long sabbatical. So, Colin, what about you? Mike, I, I got to high-five you again on this recommendation. I was maybe going to talk about this if you didn't first. I, I totally agree with you. I think Thin Red Line is a superior movie to Saving Private Ryan. I think they're both great movies in their own way. I, there are things about Saving Private Ryan that bother me that I don't want to get into because um, this is about Thin Red Line. But no, I, I think, Mike, you're right. It is a very kind of poetic movie and, and kind of existential in a way because there are a lot of shots of nature in this movie and and Terrence Malick is kind of known for that um but I think kind of what he's getting at is sort of the cosmic indifference uh, to human beings fighting each other I mean there's there's battle sweeping battle going on and then he'll maybe cut away to a bird in a tree or a lizard or something kind of giving you a sense of you know well, this is going to pass, and um, you know, this is this is what happens. But uh, there's th- there's kind of a global indifference a lot of the time to what's going on. But you're right; it is a long movie. It's maybe too slow for some people, but I liked that structure to the film because Saving Private Ryan. It's talking about a different phase of the war when the guys hit the beach. The machine guns are going, the Germans are knocking them down before they can even get out of the boats. But this is 
in the Pacific theater. This is earlier in the war. Uh, the soldiers are hitting the beach, nothing happens, and the, the Japanese sort of pull them in to the jungle. They, they pull them into their defenses. So I don't, I'm not sure when the first action scene is, but it kind of takes a while. And the movie, in a lot of ways, is very anticlimactic. Uh, Saving Private Ryan, you know, they want to hammer that point home of this is the greatest generation beating the Nazis and, and doing it for a good cause. But it's a little, it's a, it's more ambiguous uh, in Thin Red Line. And I was, I was so interested in the movie. I ended up reading the book. Um, Mike, have you read the book that it's based on? I have, I read it years ago, uh, but I have read it. Okay. It's, it's a really good book by uh, James Jones, who also wrote from here to eternity. And the movie is pretty, loyal to the book they do change some characters around um but i i yeah i like the movie because it's it's able to balance sort of the action and the performances and also the 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 cinematography is terrific so you really feel like you're there and when there is action it is very well done and like you said the performances are good uh yeah john travolta's in there and um sean penn is great as the sergeant john c Riley is in there kind of like every male actor in the last 25 years it seems to be in that movie adrian brody's in it terrific cast and yeah it was really terrence malick kind of finding his footing again after uh so much time had passed because he'd done so many great movies in the 70s and i think into the early 80s but then he took that that break and dan i'll have to go back and listen to travolta talking about why uh terrence malick took a break i can't i can't really remember but um he's done a lot of great movies since that that i should be watching right now and am not um just I just haven't gotten around to it. But Thin Red Line is a movie I've seen numerous times. I use, I used it in a classroom at one point. So, uh, yeah, Mike, terrific choice here. Yeah, I uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, it, it is. It is. I was really surprised when I saw it. Um, and I didn't see it in theater. I, I saw it when it came out. Uh, at that time, I feel like it was maybe Laserdisc. Um, and uh, I, uh, I was really surprised at just how drawn in i you know the first half an hour or so i was i was struggling the first time i watched it a little bit because you know for those who haven't seen it, there's a lot of voiceover a lot of internal monologues uh being done in these sort of whispered tones and stuff and and it was a bit it, it took a minute to sort of get with the vibe but once i did i was just bowled over and, and i've loved it more every time i've watched it i do also want to shout out this is not the first uh, adaptation of the book. Uh, there was a 1964 film with Kier Delea and Jack Warden that is a much more conventional war movie, but is also worth seeking out and watching. I, I think it's a pretty, pretty good, pretty powerful piece of, of 60s war cinema. So if people haven't seen it, check that one out too. Okay, Colin, what do you got for your third pick? Okay, well, I agree with you, Mike. I think we're going to have to do a part two because it was really tough to whittle it down to a couple choices. There are some I kind of put at the top. Um, you know, there are foreign movies I could get into, but that might be for another podcast. Um, but here's one I think you know we need to talk about, and that is 1979's Apocalypse Now. Again, maybe a movie might not necessarily fit in the war movie category because. It's so weird and so unconventional in so many ways. But 
this is one of those movies that I saw when I was fairly young, maybe around the time I saw Lawrence of Arabia, but uh, they used to play lots of movies on local television. So you could see Apocalypse Now a lot. And this is in some ways, another, a lot of ways, another epic war movie. And this is Francis Ford Coppola. He's sort of bet the farm on this movie. I mean, he had, he was coming off the Godfather. He wanted to do a, a movie about Vietnam and, I haven't seen all of it, but there, Mike, Danny, maybe you've probably seen the the documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now, which kind of shows how crazy it was. Martin Sheen was having all kinds of problems. He had a, a heart attack uh, from overwork and everything. And so the just the production of the movie was pretty epic and troubled. But what happens on the screen to me is just amazing i mean again starting with the performances martin sheen gives a terrific performance uh obviously marlon brando at the end of the movie is very memorable uh a young very young lawrence fishburne is in this so you get good performances all around but it's i think it's just really the power of the visuals in this movie and there's probably no scene there's few scenes more iconic than the the helicopter attack on the village uh, toward the beginning of this movie. Um, you've, you've got the iconic lines, you know, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Um, and so Coppola, even though it's sort of a crazy psychedelic movie, he's somehow able to kind of keep this all together. The movie had a big budget. It had production problems in terms of the sets getting destroyed by a hurricane and everything. So you can kind of feel the, the work and the sweat that went into this movie and it was probably very kind of terrifying to be there on set certain days. But I think the end result is is arguably Coppola's best movie. I mean, I know people that love The Godfather, they'd, they'd push back on that. But I think this is his best movie. I think it's the best movie about Vietnam, not in a conventional sense, because, again, it's not really about battles and who's winning and losing necessarily, but just kind of showing how crazy this this war was and how out of place we were fighting in the jungle in that way. And, you know, you can take your pick of certain scenes. Um, you know, the, the helicopter scene to, to the Wagner music is, is great, but just like the scenes when Martin Sheen is talking to these two soldiers in, in a, in a dugout or something somewhere. And there's this like really heavy, uh, psychedelic guitar music playing and they're they're just like fighting for no reason it's dark they can't see anything and um it just sort of gets across the whole idea of how futile this this war was where no one's in charge um and if the guys are are, are fighting they're carrying on they're doing it for for some for their own reasons and we see that at the end of the movie with brando kind of fighting the war on his own terms so without getting again this is a movie that could be its own podcast if not its own kind of podcast series um but again it's 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 such an iconic movie and so visually breathtaking that it it, it, it made my top three excellent i will just say one word like practical the movie's done entirely practical and it's yeah. it's incredible and it's something that will never ever, ever, ever be made today or in the future. It's, you mentioned the documentary, uh, hearts on hearts of fire, a filmmaker's apocalypse. That's a harrowing film to watch in its own, let alone, you know, the, the companion piece, which is the movie itself. I mean, there's not much more that I can say other than it's considered by many, uh, you know, a seminal classic, not just for the genre, but just in film in general. And, uh, again, practical, 
that helicopter scene was all real helicopters. I'm out. Mike? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's not much I can add. Uh, I, I do think that it is, it is fascinating to me that in another world that this would have been a George Lucas movie. Um, I, don't, I don't know if listeners know that, but this was originally supposed to be directed by Lucas, and he was basically developing it and Star Wars at the same time. And when Star Wars kind of took off first, he went that way instead of making Apocalypse Now and essentially left it for Coppola at the time uh, because Milius, John Milius wrote the script and Coppola and Lucas, as is well known, you know, they all went to USC together. They were all good friends. But I just think it is fascinating to me uh, what the world might have been like um, had Lucas directed Apocalypse Now instead. It's it's a weird alternate history that we'll never get to see. But uh, I mean, there's nothing else to add about the movie. I will say that the the new have you guys seen the new final cut that came out last year? I have not. No, I, I saw a director's cut, I think in the, it was the late 90s, early 2000s that came out. Yeah, that was the Redux version. So Coppola has recut it yet again um, and, and is supposedly has released it as his uh, definitive, you know, Blade Runner final cut type version of it i have it i have not watched it yet i've scanned through it if you have 4k capability it looks absolutely beautiful in 4k but i've not actually sat down and watched it but that is i guess he considers that to be his definitive cut now okay that's that's all i've got to add on it there's nothing else to say about the movie it's it's uh, it's a classic i agree i agree all right uh let's see mike you're gonna round it out what's your uh what's your third and final pick of the episode so I wanted to go for the last, my last pick, a movie that is uh, just a lot of fun. I, I I didn't, I wanted to pick one war movie that, that wasn't, you know, sort of heady the way that uh, Thin Red Line is or epic in length the way that uh, Great Escape is. And uh, I went with one, uh, it's another World War II one. I didn't mean to pick World War II for all my picks. It just sort of worked out that way. That's why we do need to do a part two. Uh, but uh, this one is named, well, actually, it is the title of one of my all-time favorite Misfits songs. Uh, it is the 1968 Clint Eastwood Richard Burton movie, Where Eagles Dare. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, Where Eagles Dare is just an ass-kicking action movie. It is just a, a, a full-on action film uh, where... Burton and Eastwood uh, and a team have to infiltrate a German castle in a very daring way uh, to try and rescue a kidnapped general. And I won't say any more because there is some twists and turns and, and stuff like that in the movie. But this is this is as close to I think you get in the late 60s uh, to just modern kind of ass kicking action movies as we think of them now. I mean, there's even a scene where Clint Eastwood is dual wielding machine guns in it. I mean, what more do you need to know? So um, it's, have either of you guys seen this movie? I have not. I have to say I haven't seen it either, which is surprising since I've seen so many Clint Eastwood movies. Yeah, this one, I, I do recommend it. It is just a lot of fun. It is a, you know, it was a fairly big hit when it came out, but it's kind of disappeared a bit into the ether but it is it is just it's exactly the type of movie that us action fiends uh really really want um wherein we get some really well done action but we also get some characters that actually matter uh it's clint before you know he completely blows up in dirty harry so he's still got a bit of that roguish charm that he had in the uh the sergio leone movies burton 
actually plays a convincing action hero, which is a bit surprising. If you've seen other Richard Burton movies, it's it's a bit tough to picture him, but he really does play a convincing action hero. I really think this one's just a lot of fun. Uh, so I, I do recommend that you guys check it out. Excellent. I definitely will. Okay, so yeah. what we like to do at the end of each episode is we want to let the listeners know where they can find the movies that we have discussed today. So, Mike, I'll turn it over to you first with your picks. So, uh, The Great Escape is actually streaming right now on Amazon Prime. Uh, if you have a Prime subscription or if you have a Turner Classic Movies TCM subscription, you can watch it through that. It's also available for rental or purchase anywhere. Uh, Criterion actually literally this week just announced they are dropping a, uh, a Blu-ray of it uh, later this year. So, I'm, that's a must-buy for me when that comes out. Thin Red Line is readily available for rental or purchase purchase uh, anywhere you get your movies, your Amazons, your iTunes, your Google Plays. It's not streaming on any subscription service right now, but uh, you can rent it for relatively cheap. Uh, again, uh, physical media, there is a Criterion Blu-ray of it that is absolutely beautiful and well worth uh, picking up. And uh, again, Where Eagles Dare is streaming for rental or purchase anywhere uh, you would be inclined to watch it. Perfect. All right, Colin, what about your movies? Well, um, Dan, I'm afraid I didn't do my homework quite on this this one um but i i don't think you can watch any of them on netflix so it's not that available for uh glory apocalypse now or lawrence of arabia but i think they're readily available either amazon prime and certainly you can get the dvds uh anywhere online okay all right perfect all right and actually just just uh just if you do have a CBS All Access subscription, it looks like they are streaming Apocalypse Now. So if you okay. happen to have, have that because you're a Star Trek fan, you can watch Apocalypse Now that way. Excellent. All right, Mike, if people want to follow you on social media. I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter and at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd. I just updated our ongoing Letterboxd list of all our recommendations from the last episode. I'll update it with this episode a few days after the episode drops. And I think we're... I think we're at 147, so we're going to cross the 150 mark with uh, with this episode, which is we uh, again, we are yep, we are at 147, and so we'll be crossing over uh, and and ending up at 153 uh, by the end of this episode. We're, uh, so. we're we're marching along to 200 rather quickly. Yep. Colin, yep. once again, if people want to check out your podcast and follow you on social media, how can they do that? I am at Colin E Woodward on Twitter and. I do follow back, so if you want to follow me, um, I could certainly follow you. I post fairly regularly on Twitter, not always about movies, but uh, you know all kinds of stuff. But uh, definitely check out my podcast, the American Ra- the American Rambler podcast. All the episodes are free. There's no paywall or or anything like that. I've got over 160 episodes, so if you want to get to know me and and hear Dana, um, Dana's done a couple episodes, and Mike, I think I need to have you on too. So definitely I'll be happy check out. Yeah, all right, happy. great. Perfect. Perfect. All right. And if you want to follow the show on social media, you can do so on Twitter at Dana Buckler show. You can follow me on Twitter at the, at Dana Buckler. You can follow me on Instagram at the real Dana Buckler. You can follow the show on Instagram at the Dana Buckler show and visit the website, the Dana Buckler show.com. And, uh, you can email me with questions or comments at the Dana Buckler show at gmail.com. So Colin, thank you again for joining us. I think we're, uh, we've already discussed that there's a part two that will be certainly tackling in the very near future. Thanks so much, Dana. It was a lot of fun and I would love to be back for a part two. Absolutely. Mike, thank you as always, sir. Always. Thank you, sir. And my name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening.